Our scripture reading from the English Standard Version is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 to 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God bless us with his word. When I was in college, my best friend Kevin decided that he wanted to marry Michelle also a friend of mine. Uh, this was wild stuff to me at the age of 21. I didn't know you could just go and do that sort of thing. But I accompanied him uh, to the jeweler in our home, home, hometown. It was a, a small store. Uh, we walked in, and, and he asked to see some diamonds. And uh, I remember what the, the clerk there in the jewelry store did. Um, he pulled out a, a roll. It was a, it was a velvet cloth, and he unrolled it across the, the counter there, uh, and then proceeded to pull out some, some diamonds, some small diamonds. That was all we could look at. That's all we could afford in those days. Um, but I thought it was amazing, these, these really small diamonds in, in the light and the backdrop of that dark cloth really sparkled while we were there looking at these diamonds, and he was thinking about what kind of a ring he wanted to buy to get engaged. A woman came into the store wearing a very large ring. And she pulled it off and interrupted us and thrust it to the clerk and said, is this real? The clerk took it and put it on the dark cloth and pulled out a magnifying glass and, and looked at it and then handed it back to the woman and said, I'm sorry, ma'am, it's, it's cubit zirconia, a cheap diamond alternative. Well, she snatched it and, and marched out of the store. Uh, there's some sort of a backstory there that's sad, I'm sure. But I realized not, not only does that dark backdrop help the diamonds to sparkle, but it also helps you to spot a fake. This morning, we come to a dark passage in the book of Genesis. It's not the first or, or the last 
dark passage that we're going to run into in this series we're calling Generations of Grace. But it is a text that, that puts us to the test as, as readers of Bible stories, of Bible narratives. Uh, the passage that was just read from 1 Corinthians, I wanted to read because it tells us how we're supposed to read stories like this one. Did, did you hear as Fichin read, uh, it says that these stories are meant as examples for us. And, and they were written down for our instruction we who the end of the ages have come upon. And that tells us two things. First of all, that we're supposed to read these stories looking for examples. So we're supposed to compare our lives with the people in the story and see things that we should do and we shouldn't do. But then we need to read it in light of the end of the ages, the age in which we live, which is the age in which Jesus has come. He has died and he has rose again and the preaching of the gospel now is to all people so that they can repent and trust in Christ. So we have to read these stories which are about sinful people doing sinful things, trying to better understand God and the redemption that he sought to bring through Jesus Christ. And as I was thinking also as, as we begin, uh, it, you know, we, we live in an age of marketing, don't we? I mean, marketing's all around us. When we want to market products, we, we want them to sparkle. We want to see their, their good things and present them. We don't want to talk about their bad things. And, and when we write resumes these days, I mean, how funny would it be if, if, if you were writing a resume and you thought, uh, I think I should share some of my weak points as well, just to be honest with this prospective employer. You know, we, we don't do that, right? We, we put forward our, our, our best foot, and yet, what, what's God doing here as we walk through the lives of the founders of our faith, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and, and we're reading about all their dirty, dirty laundry? I mean, the, the family secrets are on full display here, and, and many of them are not pretty. Well, as always, God's ways are not our ways. And He wants you and I to see that the founders of the faith, just like you and I, we're sinful, fallen human beings. And the triumph is not their great strength and their great endurance and, and anything great about them. Their triumph is through the grace of God. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Uh, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to do that. Maybe you can jot it down or even uh, write it into your, your cell phone. And, and later at, at a hawker center, you can get together with somebody over some Nazi Lamak and talk about the main point uh, and some of the application points for you. I think the main point of the, the passage this morning is that a fractured family carries forward the promised blessing of God. A fractured family carries forward the promised blessing of God. And we'll consider that in two points. First of all, a fractured family. A fractured family, and then secondly, carrying the blessing. It, it's my prayer that, that we'll all leave this morning with a, a better sense of how God wants to work in and through this fractured family. So let's dive into the text. I'm picking it up in the last couple verses of chapter 26. Um, point one, a fractured family. It will be 2634 all the way through the end of 27, but we'll take it in chunks and we'll kind of look at it through the lens of the main characters in the story. So in a fractured family, the, the first person we're going to meet here is an inattentive father. 
an inattentive father. Let me read. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. In many ways, we feel like we just met Isaac. Uh, two chapters earlier, he, he married Rebecca at the age of 40. Uh, she got pregnant with twins. And remember, these boys didn't wait until they were teenagers to start fighting with each other. They, they were even in the womb jostling with each other so that she prayed to God and asked, what is happening to me? In chapter 25, 23, God gave her a prophecy about these two sons. He said, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So Rebecca knows, and presumably she would have told Isaac, so they knew that the younger son is supposed to be preeminent by God's design. The, the mantle of spiritual leadership and blessing is supposed to be on Jacob. But then in that chapter, we're told this one other thing that's like a, a foreshadowing of what's to come, and that's that Isaac loved Esau because of the delicious game, the, the meat that he would bring him. And, and Rebecca, well, she loves Jacob. When, whenever we read of parental favoritism in the text, we, we should say, oh, no, what's going to happen? I guess not just in the Bible, in real life, my my kids are ever vigilant for signs of parental favoritism. The son comes to me and says, well, why did you give her candy? I was like, what am I going to say? Oh, because I love her more. No, no, no. You know, they're, they're watching out. Do, do they, the parents treat us the same? Well, the text tells us that the parents have divvied out their love and affection in a dangerous way here. But I think there's, there's something else that we're meant to see here as we dive into the text, which is that Isaac has been inattentive to the spiritual condition of his sons. In particular, he seems blind to what is going on with Esau. Esau has married Hittite women. That, that's the way in Genesis to say that someone is godless if, if they marry someone who is not a worshiper of Yahweh. And that's true all the way to today. If someone says, I love God, and then they want to marry an unbeliever, well, either they don't understand Christianity, or they don't understand marriage, or both. Esau here is a godless man. Seemingly, Isaac's unaware of this. We see no sign that he rebuked his son. Rather, he seems driven by, by what he can get out of his son, this delicious meat. And I think what we have here is a sober warning to parents. Isaac may have been attentive in many ways. He certainly is excited about his son's career, how well he's doing in many ways. 
But what really matters seems to go right by him. I mean, think about us as parents. If, if our children grow up and they do well in school and they get a good job and they get married and they have two kids and a flat and a car and a country club membership, but they don't care about the Lord, what good is any of that? That those things are, are not what should get the lion's share of our attention and our focus and certainly our prayers. You know, I'm new to Singapore. Uh, I've lived in Shanghai for many years. I can tell you in Shanghai that I'm, I'm forever pleading with parents in the congregation, especially with young children, to, to sacrifice time at work for time at home. You know, leave that office at 6 o'clock, and get home. They say, Mark, well, that, that's going to be a CLM for me. That's going to be a career-limiting move. Well, so be it. You, you can't get that time back. While you gather over dinner, perhaps, or whatever, whenever your family is, is together, fathers, open the Bible and, and read to your family. Start a conversation. Pray for them. That, those are the memories that you want your children to have. They think about what mattered to dad. I wonder what you could do just this next week to show more spiritual attention to your kids. But this is the first installment in our family portrait, an inattentive father. Let's keep reading in verse 5 and think about number 2, a scheming mother. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. And Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hands of her son, Jacob. I wonder what you think about Rebecca here. Uh, there is some debate among commentators. Uh, some lean on that earlier prophecy we talked about to say that Rebecca's doing what she has to do to overcome Isaac's blindness. And to some degree, I think we can understand that. But I think it would be better to read the text in its natural way, which is to say that the ends don't justify the means. Rebecca may have the right goal in some ways, but she goes about it in the wrong way. Her words there are especially frightening as her son expresses fear in doing this thing, and she says, let your curse be upon me, my son. When we hear about curse in the book of Genesis, it harkens back to the Garden of Eden and the curse of God against human sin. 
I think all of us should be chastened to remember here that we should not listen to any authority that is telling us to disobey God. Christians generally are obedient people because we understand that all authority belongs to God and that God delegates that authority rightfully to to parents and to governments and to teachers. So we're obedient people. But there are limits to obedience. Jacob here should have told his mom that he can't go along with this plan. Children, if you're here, you, you need to understand that God actually holds you responsible to disobey your parents if they are telling you to disobey God. But the aspect of Rebecca here that is sadly most relatable, I think, to you and I is our tendency to take matters into our own hands rather than to trust God. Rebecca could see that her husband was making an error. She should have prayed instead of plotted. I'm not saying that that we should go through life in a lazy way. When, When you can do something good or right or appropriate, by all means do that. But when you're in a situation where you've done what you can and should do, and that still hasn't solved the problem, you should go and pray and trust God with it and let it be. Parents, we we certainly have to do that with our children. We hope as we raise them to impart good things to them and, and to teach them the gospel, certainly in the scriptures. But at the end of the day, we can't make them follow God. We are going to have to hit our knees and pray for them and wait for the fire of God to fall upon their hearts. Married folk, we need to do this with problems in our marriage, struggles that we have with our spouse. We should not manipulate or scheme. We should pray. Single people need to do this with faithfulness in the stage of life that God has you right now. Church leaders need to do this with hope that they uh, hope for change that they want to see in their congregation. You understand what I'm saying? We, we regularly reach these points in life where we've done what we can do. Let go of anxiety. Don't scheme. Don't manipulate circumstances. Do the next right thing. Trust God and pray. So we have an intentive father. We have a scheming mother. As we keep going in the text, number three, we have a lying son. So he went into his father and said, my father. He said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. And Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he didn't recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate. He brought him wine, and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. 
May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. It's quite a performance by Jacob, don't you think? I mean, he, he really carries out the instructions to a T, pulls it off, and it works. But I want us to think about what it costs. Because four times in this text, Jacob has to lie directly to his father. Did you notice that? First in verse 19, Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. It's lie number one. I have done as you have told me. Lie number two, now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Then in verse 20, lie number three, but Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. And then fourth down in verse 24, you really my son Esau? I am. You know, the third one isn't just a lie. It's a blasphemous lie. He, he calls Yahweh as a witness to something that never happened. And after the fourth, he has to come and betray his father and his brother with a kiss. You know, speaking the truth is at the heart of godliness, isn't it? Because God never lies. It's the heart of all we believe. If God lies, then we are wasting our time here this morning. I don't know anything truly and finally to share with you. But God doesn't lie. All that he says in the scriptures, all that he says in the gospel. And, and that's why God holds to such a high standard those who would be his followers in this regard. Proverbs 12.22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. This means that we shouldn't lie on our taxes, we shouldn't lie on our resumes, we shouldn't lie on our test papers, we should not lie by embellishing stories or exaggerating our accomplishments, we shouldn't lie by promising to do something and then not following through. Pastors who stand up to speak God's word must not change it, must not manipulate it, must not mislead people. Speaking the truth is one of the clearest ways that you and I can testify to the fact that we follow one who always speaks the truth. So how's the family doing so far? An inattentive father, a scheming mother, a lying son. It gets worse. Let's consider fourth, a blame-shifting brother. Pick up the story in verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. 
But he said, your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, Away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. That is a heartbreaking text in so many ways, isn't it? You can feel the emotion for Isaac, for Esau. Verse 34 there, Esau cries out with an exceedingly great, bitter cry. And then he pleads with his father to no avail, and then he he simply cries and weeps in the end. And to be sure, Esau is sinned against here, right? He's, he's sinned against by his brother, by his mother. But readers of the text will, will notice how odd it is for him to say, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. Took away my birthright, now he's taken away my blessing. Is that the way it happened? Is that the way it went down? There's some serious interpretation of events going on here, right? I mean, it's true that Jacob picked a weak moment earlier to get Esau to to sell him his birthright. But truth be told, it's not like he was holding a gun to his head. It's a choice that Esau made, wasn't it? See, the truth is that Esau despises the Lord in the way that he's living his life. He, He has no interest in honoring God. He simply wants to live his life according to his desires. He wants to do what he wants to do. Birthrights and blessings don't matter to him until the the time of inheritance approaches. And so when things come crashing down around him, he he has no interest in self-reflection, in repentance, in asking, what is it about me that needs to change my relationship with God? It's not a question that he asks. He simply shifts the blame to Jacob. It's all his fault. Pointing the finger comes easy to Esau. You know, I think it's worth asking ourselves, when when we find ourselves in conflict, as we do so often in life, if we are unable to answer the question, what have I done in this conflict that's wrong, and answer it, if we're sure that the other person started the conflict, the other person sustained the conflict, and the other person should pay for the conflict. It's worth asking, I think, whether we're blind to our own condition. Ask yourself, are you quick to own what you have done, or are you good at pointing the finger at others? So we see blame shifting here, but what of Esau's sorrow? I mean, surely that signals something well. Maybe he's, he's making a change here. Maybe he has a, a change of heart. Is that a good sign, his weeping? The Bible distinguishes worldly sorrow from godly sorrow. Important verse in 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. 
But worldly sorrow brings death. I think what we see here with Esau is worldly sorrow. The question we should ask ourselves by way of application is, are you grieved by sin or just by the consequences of sin? You know the difference there? Does the sin itself grieve you when you do wrong? A relational offense against the God of the universe and the God that has been so gracious to you? Does the sin itself grieve you? Or are you merely sad that you have to pay a price for your sin? Well, there we have it. An inattentive father, a scheming mother, a lying son, and a blame-shifting brother. That's the family portrait. The final paragraph, chapter 27 here, shows us the broken pieces of this very fractured family. Verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. Stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be? be to me. Esau hates his brother Jacob, and hatred is the precursor to murder. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He who hates his brother has already committed murder in his heart. Esau is plotting to wait until his dad dies to do it, and Rebekah gets wind of the plan, so plans to send him away to her brother Laban. Her her words in verse 46 there are are a pretext to do so. She knows that Esau's wives are a burden to Isaac, so he'll be motivated to to go with her plan. She's still scheming. She's still deceiving her husband. You wonder if Isaac and Rebekah's marriage would ever be the same again. When, When you lose trust in a marriage, it is very difficult to rebuild it. If you're married, protect the trust that you have with your spouse at all costs. When Solomon, in the Song of Solomon, says, catch for us the little foxes that ruin vineyards, he he uses that metaphor because they're hard to catch. It's going to take great vigilance and great work. We wish that we could hear an apology here from Rebecca to Isaac. We, we wish that we could hear an apology from, from Rebekah to Jacob and Rebekah to Esau and Jacob to Esau. We wish that we could see the kind of reconciliation that is possible with repentance and forgiveness. But in chapter 27 of the book of Genesis, this is our dark velvet cloth. We're meant to here to, to look at the consequences of sin, be warned, take the example to see the picture of a broken family. The question for us, really, is what about the diamonds? Are there diamonds in this story for us to see? What are there? Is there hope 
amidst the darkness. So let's consider, second, more briefly, carrying the blessing. Pick up the story in chapter 28. Carrying the blessing. When Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padnaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padnaram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padnaram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padnaram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael. And took as his wife, beside the wives that he had, <clears throat> Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabaoth. I think there are two diamonds here for us to see. The first is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. God's sovereign plan of redemption is unshaken by the sinful actions of human beings. Doesn't that shine through this this text? I mean, Rebecca's plan works again here. She's not behaving righteously, but the reader of Genesis knows that it's precisely through this plan that Jacob is going to go and uh, marry uh, Leah and Rachel and have the 12 uh, children that will become the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is how the the blessing of God is going to move forward. And And Jacob has to go to Laban if he's going to marry a believer in Yahweh. So God's sovereignty is at work in and over and above and through the the sinful actions of human beings here. I I love that old hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. The first two lines go like this. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Boy, that's what we see happening here. And that might be real comfort to you here this morning if you're suffering because of the sinful actions of other people. If you've been sinned against, and you're suffering as a result. I have a good friend uh, back in the States whose husband recently left her. Uh, it was a couple that served in ministry f- with us for many, many years. Uh, and just a heartbreaking situation. Uh, he's made shipwreck of his faith and, and devastated the family. And, and as we've tried to comfort and counsel her, th- there's no silver lining uh, that's immediately evident in a situation like this. I mean, when somebody's suffering like that, I I think we need to be careful not just to go and and quote Romans 8.28 to them and say, God works all things together for good. It's true. It is true. But in the moment for her, there's just suffering. There's just devastation. And yet, it is right 
to say to people who are suffering, and if you are suffering, to, to grasp hold of it and believe it. God will bring about good even through the sin that you've endured. He will bring about good because He is good and He intends good for His people in the end. Christians know that because the, the most wicked thing that was ever done, the murder of the sinless Son of God, brought about the greatest good the world has ever known, the salvation of sinners like you and I. So, beloved, take encouragement from God's sovereignty that we see in this text. Now, I think there's a second diamond for us to see here, and that's that there's hope for the repentant. There's hope for the repentant. I mean, look at Isaac here. Uh, we're right to criticize him for his spiritual inattentiveness earlier, but he's changed. In this text, at least, he has repented. His words show that he's, he's come to terms with the purpose of God and giving the blessing to Jacob, to his younger son. And we can see in verse 3 that he's specifically connected the promises to Abraham as now resting on Jacob. Look, look again at verse 3. God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful and multiply you. So that's, that's language from Genesis 1.28. That you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you. So this is Genesis 12 now. And to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So, so he sees Jacob now as the one who's going to carry forward the dominion and dynasty, the the promised land and the promised offspring that will carry the blessing of God forward until ultimately all the peoples on earth are blessed through him. All of this is the language of a man who's made peace with the providence of God. Beloved, this morning, have you made peace with the providence of God, with the specific situation that you find yourself in do you know that God has you exactly where he wants you? The issue for you as you go through life and as you struggle and as you sin is to realize repentance and faith is always the pathway to joy for us. It was for Isaac here as we see him change, as we see him willing to admit where he was wrong and willing to trust God again. Oh, that's the application for us this morning. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't hold out in that area of sin, justifying yourself to God and to people around you. When, when the Spirit comes to you and, and points out to you, shines a spotlight on that area of your, your life, that, that anger issue, that, that area of, of compromise in terms of biblical ethics, whatever it is, don't, don't double down on your disobedience. Dig in your heels. Defend yourself. Rather, have a soft heart and say, yes, God, I was wrong. I repent. Take from this text the, the, the great hope that there is for all who are repentant. Uh, Esau stands in stark contrast to that, right? Do, do you see that picture of Esau that we're given right there at the end? I mean, he, he sees that his, his wives haven't been pleasing to his dad and he He's thinking about it. And he says, oh, it's got to be the line of Abraham. I'm supposed to be connected to the line of Abraham. I've been marrying, marrying the wrong people. Okay? So, so and the reader of Genesis finds great irony in the fact that he would then choose a daughter of Ishmael 
who was the fruit of Abraham and Sarah's attempt to manipulate and solve their, their situation, not by faith, but by their own efforts. Esau is before us here as a, as a self-righteous person, a person who doesn't understand repentance and faith, who wants to do it on their own. Beloved, there is hope for the repentant. We know that in a more clear way than Isaac ever could because Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like you and I. When we find ourselves in the text of Genesis 27, have we been spiritually inattentive? Yes, we have. Have we schemed and not trusted? Yes. Have we lied? Oh, we've lied so many times. Have we shifted the blame? Yeah, we've done that too. But when we see our sin, for us to run to the cross and understand that that is why the Son of God had to die, and He did die for sin. And we understand that the the way is open to return to the Father and be reconciled to Him through faith in His Son. Oh, we should do that. This text urges us to do that. We were here the other evening for Grandma P's wake, and we we sang that song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus, the question for you is, where else will you go with your sin? God has made a way of forgiveness for you if you'll simply believe in what Jesus did and trust in him. I pray that you would do that this morning. I'd love to talk to you more about it after the service. Brothers and sisters, for for those of us who have trusted in Christ, does Satan come to you and accuse you again of your sin? Do you find yourself in the midst of sin hearing that accusing voice and you call yourself a Christian and then you act like this, well, come back again and see the hope for the repentant here. Turn away from your sin. Experience the the washing as white as snow that is available to you through faith. We began by thinking about the dark background that makes the diamonds sparkle. And we've spent our time studying how this fractured family carries forward the promised blessing of God. What about us, beloved? What about you and I and our fractured families, our inattentive fathers and scheming mothers and lying children and blame-shifting brothers? What about this family called the church? We aspire to let our light so shine so that others may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. So often we fall short of that. But at the end of the day, what marks us out as believers and what marks us out as the church is not our perfection. It's our repentance. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, let's be repentant people who place all of our trust and all of our hope in Christ. Let's pray.